All right. Well, we're we've we've arrived at a place in Ephesians where we get to go to the second of our three words that we're using to encapsulate this whole book. Remember, we use the three words of sit and then walk and then stand. And we have for weeks been sitting and uh, sitting, meaning encamping, uh, in, in uh, finding ourselves entrenched in the in the principles and truths of God's word. And then he's turning the page. Now we get to walk in that truth. And then we're in Ephesians chapter 4, the second half of that chapter. We're going to start in verse 17. If I were looking for a phrase that captured the thinking that this entire second half of chapter 4 is trying to teach us, I would use a phrase something like this. You are your values. You are your values. Now, I know you know the phrase, you are what you eat, right? Um, I was doing a little reading and studying on those phrases this last week, and I had to laugh. Uh, how many enjoy French fries? French fries are on your list of things. Yeah, okay, me too. But um, they were trying to make a statement about this, you argue what you eat, um, about how our productivity is higher when we cut out fatty foods, like French fries. So they did a study. This is not, I'm not lying to you. Uh, they took a bunch of mice. And they put them through some sort of a, some sort of a series of, of, of activities, things that they had to do. And they were scoring at a certain height. You know, we got six of them right or six out of ten or whatever it was. And so then they started feeding them french fries. <laughs> and their productivity went down. So now they were only getting four out of ten right or whatever it was. You know, I... Well, okay. I mean, if you didn't get a hamburger with the french fries, of course your productivity went down. I don't know. <laughs> it is true. You are what you eat. If you over this or over that, there's too much of this or too much of that in your system. I get it. I understand. But perhaps even more valuable is this phrase, you are your values. When somebody looks at your life, your family, they evaluate your activities you know, when you get in the car and where you go, what kind of things happen at your house? What kind of people stop by? What kind of noises come out of your house? What kind of things do you talk about when you meet at the, at the uh, mailbox every day? What, what are you doing with your children when you have a play date with kids? Kids used to play, by the way, but now we have play dates. But anyway, uh, <laughs> another editorial comment. I'm full of them today, man. <laughs> I'm speaking this Thursday on parenting and fear. Would you like to come? I really am on it. But anyway, at a mops group at my church. Uh, they may run me out with pitchforks by the time I finish. Anyway, when people see our lives, when they see what we do, what we, we talk about, what, what things are important to us, is there patterns to our life that are positive patterns as opposed to negative patterns? Pretty soon they get a hint as to the values that you're living your life by. We don't actually have to say much. If people are, are living in community and they have an opportunity to observe your life, they're going to be able to tell an awful lot. And Paul, in this, in this writing, is saying, starting in verse number 17, hey, don't live like those Gentiles do. He says in verse 17, so I tell you this, and I insist on it, in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. He, he goes on to describe what that's like and the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. Now, when he says don't live anymore like the Gentiles, he's not talking about the Jews and the Gentiles in this church in Ephesus, the Gentiles being people that were not born Jews. He's using the word Gentiles as a, as a synonym for the unsaved. Don't live like the unsaved do. People that live on our street should be able to go, Christian, Christian, no, 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 Christian. Now, if your house wasn't in the Christian, Christian, that's a problem. There should be indicators. Now, I'm not talking about placards in the yard. (laughs) I'm not talking about an inability to carry on a normal conversation with someone or have them to your house without attacking them uh, uh, with the gospel. But I mean, is there not something observable that suggests that your life is different, appreciably different, than the guy down the street, that your values are different? He said the futility of their mind, there's an emptiness. It's caused by an illusion. And that illusion is the pleasures of sin. Now here at Stony Brook, uh, not so much the last few years, but but years past, the junior hires used to have used to love to have a question and answer time with me, and they loved to ask about my childhood or my 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 teenage lives, and and I would answer most of them honestly. I yeah, I took I, you know the the opportunity to draw the line at certain things, but generally I would answer. But one of the comments I would always finish after we'd have that conversation is, look, guys, nobody ever said sin wasn't fun. Sin is fun. (laughs) Okay, you can laugh. It is fun. But the Bible says it's the pleasures of sin for a season, just for a little while. It's not satisfying. It's not sustainable. It doesn't feed our soul. So these people, these, these unsaved folks, he said, don't live like them. They, they have an illusion that the pleasures of sin is everything. They're darkened in their understanding. They have a secular mindset. They are separated or alienated or estranged by their ignorance and by the hardening of their heart. The word hardening of their heart, the word hardening there means to be made of marble or to be callous. It's the idea that the center of their being has become stone-like. It's not, it's not malleable. It's not, it's not workable. They, they can't go before God, repent, and, and have that worked on. They're hardened. They're stiff. They've lost all sensitivity. Now, goodness, guys, uh, if you watch this much television, you have to understand that our culture as a whole has lost all of its sensitivity to right and wrong. So, so I'm showing my age here, but just for funsies. When uh, Rob and Laura and uh, what was the name of that show? Oh, Dick Van Dyke Show. You remember the Dick Van Dyke Show? Anybody? When it showed them in their bedroom, what did you see? Two twin beds. Right? That's right. Sitting in it, propped up, reading, talking over the events of the day. Okay, last night on television, what did you see? You, you didn't eat, they don't even need beds. They don't need bedrooms. They don't need beds. All they need is two bodies. They don't have to be male and female. And they push them together and the activities are in our face. We have lost all sensitivity. The things that used to be just not polite are ignored. When I was a child, my dad was in the Navy. Navy men have language issues. But I can remember as a kid, 
when, when dad would bring home Uncle Frank and Uncle Bill and whoever the, n- the next uncle was, and they were at dinner, because my dad was a married man and most of the guys that he worked with were not, and he'd bring them home for dinner, and we'd be sitting, and they'd be goofing off and playing with me and my brother, and one of them would make a, a faux pas, and my dad would <laughs> smack them. You know, and, and I can remember hearing him say, we don't talk like that in this house. We're, we're, not, we're not talking like that. Well, where's that in our culture? Just a sensitivity to that. Or the, or the sensitivity to the male and femaleness of our culture. In the drive to be equal, we've lost the lines that are appropriate. Years ago, I hit the, the, the door of the post office in Garden Grove at the same time as an older gentleman. So both of us hit the handle about the same moment. And as we both hit the, the, the handle to open the door, the older gentleman turned and looked at me, and he said, You a woman's liver? <laughs> and I paused, and I said, No, sir, I am not. He grabbed the handle, swung the door open, and said, Good morning, ma'am. Well, look, I like good morning, ma'am. That doesn't mean I don't want to be a leader or that I, want, I don't want to have uh, things for which I am known or be good at my craft or anything else. Yesterday, walking into Bible study, one of the ladies, her little son was there, and he was holding the door open for me as I walked through. And I stopped. I leaned down to get in his eyeballs, and I said, you know what? The mom told me his name. I think it was Brent. I said, Brent, I really appreciate you holding the door open for me. Thank you. That was very respectful. I want to reinforce in a six-year-old little boy that ladies like that. Now, don't underestimate me in a boardroom. Don't underestimate me in a business context. But I still like the sensitivity that was a part of our culture. The way we know we're living in a, in, a, in a fallen world is that's not what's going on around us. And full of greed, oh my goodness, there is a continual lust. There's an unsatisfied desire for the stuff that feeds the flesh. So, so Paul says in verse number 20, that however, that however is not the way of life you have learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old flesh or the old self, which is being corrupted by the deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now he's going to use a clothing metaphor here. One that you can find in Colossians chapter 3 that talks about wearing or putting on good things and taking off old things. The idea is exactly that. Put off the old self. In Romans 6, it talks about us being crucified with Christ. And then in chapter 12, that, the, that our mind is, is being renewed. Now that happens when we take off our old self. When, when you see a Christian who, who barely looks any different after five or six years of walking with the Lord, I, I, I have a suspect about their salvation. You say, well, Sherry, sure, you shouldn't be evaluating. The Bible says that we will be known by our fruit. And if your life looks exactly the same as it did before you're coming to Christ, something's wrong. Now, I'm not saying that we're holier than thou or we're perfect or somebody should be able to point to your house on the street and say, oh, the perfect people live there. Well, they don't, at least not on my street. But they should be able to look and say, oh, 
there's been some changes in that house. You know, you know, eight or ten years ago, they had the parties of the week. And it's not much of a party place down there anymore. Used to be the kids, da-da-da-da, and I've noticed in them, da-da-da, or I've noticed in the relationship between the husband and wife. Again, not perfect, but a, but a change. The old self is done away with, the new self is put on. Not without our sin, not without our need for repentance, not without a cycle of, of difficulty, but nonetheless, we have changed. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And if you don't have this verse memorized, it's your assignment for this afternoon. Did I say 1 Corinthians? I meant 2. Thank you. Somebody was already going, no, it isn't, Terry. It's I angry. I can hear you muttering out there. Was that you, Barb? Uh-huh. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Might be a good time to have a little personal inventory. What what is new and different since you came to Christ? Are you thinking differently? Are you evaluating things differently? Are you quicker to forgive? Are you quicker to repent? Are you quicker to change some things when the Holy Spirit draws it to your conscience or your awareness? If you answer no to all those things, then mm, I don't know. Again, not perfection. I just said quicker to. Quicker to repent. Not that you don't need to repent, but quicker to repent. Are you quicker to go? You're right. That was That's on me. That was that was my mouth going amok. There was some impatience there. That, that was wrong. Are you quicker to do that today than you were five or six years ago? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Are your values changing? The things that you used to think were so important, are they diminishing? Maybe not gone, but diminishing. Is your relationship with your family, your husband, is that, is that in its rightful place? If you got the kids in front of him, you got them wrong. He goes first, then the kids. And before him is the Lord. You know, are your priorities changing? What are you spending your money on? If you're spending your money on exactly the same things you did before you were a Christian, wait a minute. Is he Lord of our pocketbook as well? Of course he is. That doesn't mean you're giving everything away to the poor and you're living on 2% of your income. We're not talking about being weird. We're talking about being old. Old as opposed to new. Is there growth? Is there maturity? Have we put off the old? Are we having the attitude of the renewal of our mind? In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What kind of mindset did Christ have? Well, golly, not mine, but I'd like it to be like that. So when I repent and when I am quick to say I was wrong and when I am quick to forgive, when I'm quick to ignore faults that have done for me, those are steps all in the right direction. Listen, he's saying, don't live like the, the unsaved do. That is not your way of life. And then to make certain that these, the, 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 these people in the church at Ephesus got his message, Paul now takes eight categories. And he gives those eight categories and essentially says, these are the eight areas where our behavior should change. When we are a new creature in Christ Jesus, these eight things ought to be shifting. Now, I read them over studying this last week. And I said to myself, well, I'm... I'm not doing too bad in that area and that area. 
until I started digging a little bit more in those areas, and thank you very much, I am in trouble in all eight areas. <laughs> so if I'm in trouble in all eight, at least one or two of them ought to hit you. So let's look at him. He starts in verse 25. Now he's clarifying this is the way we put off the old and put on the new. Each of you must put off all falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Speak truthfully. Now, when we don't speak truthfully, where does that come from? Well, Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 8 when he was talking to um, folks about speaking truth. He said, when you don't, you belong to your father, the devil, for there's no truth in him. The very first time we're introduced to Satan is in Genesis chapter 3. And what does he say? What's his opening line to Eve? He Hath God said, that's KJV, has God said. Because she says, God says that we can eat anything there is except for that one. And so what does Satan do? He comes in and distorts the truth. Has God really said that? That same lie is his opening line in almost everything in our lives. When you take a position for something that's in God's word, what you're going to hear back is some version of, has God really said that? Come on. You really believe that? Yeah, I do. It's in a book. Hath God said, the source of untruth when we speak untruthfully is, is Satan. And the scope of what our word should be is yes or no. Not the yes to one person, but not really to someone else. Not, not equivocating depending on the crowd, but that we take a stand. Yes or no. This is good or bad. No, not everything is black and white. There are shades of stuff. I understand that. Nuances of things, circumstances of things. But generally speaking, the Bible is saying we ought to be people of our word. There should be integrity to us. Somebody should know that, 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 that Sherry's not going to say one thing to one person and turn around and say a different thing to someone else. There should be some consistency. The position you take as a family should not be just what you said, but what you do. That there's a speaking of truthfulness. That people can value your word. Look at Proverbs 19. What a person desires is unfailing love. It's better to be poor than a liar. Well, you know what? I've heard this so many times, particularly in the context of, of business or work. Well, we couldn't tell the whole truth. We had to shade it a little bit. Otherwise, we would have lost their business. Better to be poor than a liar. You know, um, when, when we are dealing with things in our lives and we have a choice between speaking truth or shading the truth, really what we're doing is having an opportunity. It's a little pop quiz. It's God coming along saying, so you've been talking about how you're growing in grace, how you're becoming more like my son. Here's pop quiz. Boop. You're going to tell the, the whole truth or are you going to shade it? Are you going to make yourself look a little better in that story? than it really was or a little less bad in that story than it really was is the fish that you caught this big or this big when you're telling when you're telling something to someone else do you make sure that you're the one that looks like the hero in the story or are you just the person in the background we're supposed to speak with truth and have integrity in our lives it's one of the touchstones of these people who
who were unlike the unsaved. Let me give you a second one. Maybe you escaped that when you said, oh, I'm pretty good in that. Integrity-wise, I'm pretty good. Look, let's look at verse 26. He said, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, anger in and of itself is not wrong. Anger is an emotion, just like a whole host of other emotions. And those emotions are not necessarily right or wrong. There are some things that you should have flaming righteous indignation for. And it's okay to be angry about it. You're at, at, at a business function for your husband's work. Your husband is very faithful and he's a godly man and you love him for it and you're standing there and you're watching some twit, some 22-year-old marketing something another, who's throwing herself all over your husband. Is it appropriate for you to have righteous indignation? In my opinion, yes. Now don't hit her, don't throw something at her, don't cause a scene. But there ought to be welling up in you a, a pardon me. There are times when righteous indignation is appropriate. There are situations and causes in our world that we ought to rally behind with some righteous indignation. It's appropriate for that to well up. What Paul's saying is anger is wrong when we respond to it in one of these fashions with a selfish mindset. I'm mad because it bugs me. Not because it's wrong, but because it's bothering me. When anger comes out of a selfish mindset, it should be abandoned. When we're losing control, when our voice goes up or we grit our teeth. I could always tell when I was parenting Brianna when I was about to lose it. Because I started <laughs> gritting my teeth. <laughs> when I'm really, really mad, I get very soft. Very soft. Very measured. Very focused. Okay, those are all little signs. We're about to lose it. Or on the other end, when, when we've allowed bitterness to set in, when over a period of time we've allowed that anger to simmer, and now, now it's not, it's not a, a rage, it's not a flare-up, but it's a, it's a, it's a stirring, a, a simmering, a, a bitterness to set in. Or, as the scripture says, we've allowed Satan to get a foothold. He knows that that's a way to rile us up, is to, is to twerk, twerk us so our anger comes out. Anger is not in and of itself wrong until it's either selfish or you're losing control or you're allowing bitterness to set in or you've just let Satan have a door into your heart. Now, some scripture there for you, Psalm 37, verse 8. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. Nothing good comes out of losing control. When we're angry and we've lost control, nothing good's going to happen. If you're parenting your kid and, and you're at that decimal and you know where it is, watch their eyes. It, 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 they shut down. It's like they close the door to their soul. Done. Bleep. You can see it. You're over here doing that. I'm looking at Nicole here. She's my, you know, 16-year-old kid. And, I, and I'm really getting in. All of a sudden, click. She's gone. Brianna's gone. She's still standing there, but I can tell she's gone. Well, what good is anger at that point? It's, it's totally non-productive. All, it all it's done is sandpaper a little part of my soul. And maybe hers. So when we are looking at anger, at ha handling anger appropriately, 
We, we, we look at verses like uh, Proverbs 16, verse 32. Better is a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. We honor in our culture people of strong, you know, uh, uh, verbally and, 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 and leaders and, and people who are warriors or who can take a city. And the Bible says, whoa, 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 turn that on its head. Better is a, is a patient person. Which would you rather have, a husband who runs, I don't know, you know, a Fortune 500 company and is never home, or a husband who sits in the living room on any given evening and does spelling words with your kid? You want a patient partner in parenting. And God's saying here, hey, handle your anger appropriately. All right, so let's get that one done and go to the next one. Look at verse 28. Anybody starting to feel a little pinched? Okay, never mind. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So I read that one. I went, all right, good. I found one I, gotta, I can take a pass on. Because I got a pretty good work ethic. I'm, I, I, I'm not a thief. I don't steal from people. I, you know, they over overpay me back at a store. I'm the one that hands it back. They... The girl doesn't get the change right. I stop her until I can help her. She needs to go to school. She can't add. You know, can't say my heart was not right, but at least I give her her money back. Okay, so I'm not a thief. And I'm thinking, all right, this is good. I'm not around stealing anything. In fact, on the other hand, it's, it says to give. And, and I'm a pretty decent giver. So I'm giving myself a pass until I started to think. Are there other things that we steal that's not stuff? Do we steal somebody's reputation when we slander them? Yeah, we do. Hey, I don't know. Have you have you heard about Judy? <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> wondered if you'd heard about her. <laughs> you know, you steal somebody's reputation just by a, a slight slandering. You can, you can steal somebody's joy with a word of unkindness. How many times did your children walk in the door from school and make no mistake about it, that, that experience, no matter where they go to school, is a challenging activity for them every day. And they walk in the door. They got, you know, got, they got holes in them. Teacher didn't call on them. They didn't do as good on the test. Freddie wouldn't let them sit next to him at lunch. All the crises that are real in the life of a child. And they walk in the door and the first thing they hear from you is, I have told you a thousand times your backpack does not go there. So what did you steal from them? I'm not saying they shouldn't learn where to put their backpack. But how about a 10 or a 15 minute uh, 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 zone when you first hit the door? For 15 minutes, I am not going to say anything to my kids about where backpacks or shoes or lunch pails go. I'm not going to nag them about, did you do good on your spelling test? Did you hand in that piece of paper I told you to? Did you tell that the teacher, da, 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 da? I'm going to, for 10 or 15 minutes, totally create a space of peace for you. I'm going to have something cold to drink. I'm going to ask you how your day was. And then don't ask them, how is your day? What is the standard answer? <laughs> Fine. Fine. <laughs> you ask penetrating questions. Who did you sit next to at lunch? You know? How, how, how did Susie do in reading? You said the other day she was struggling. How was she doing today? 
You give them 10, 15 minutes apiece. Now, how about your husbands? Do they get a 10 or 15 minute piece when they walk in the door? <laughs> well, golly, he should have been here. I had to, I had to, I had to, I had to. Okay, we're stealing somebody's joy. Give them a 10, 15 minute pass. You know, hand them a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea. But when we steal somebody's joy, it's just as real stealing as if we took their stuff. We, t- we take their peace away with some hostility. And so on and so on and so on. I, I think Paul's on to something about do not steal. And it's not just stuff. I had a hard time with that one once I chewed on that. Number, uh, verse 29. The fourth thing he's going after. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. So Paul is so consumed with the mouth thing, he's hitting this twice. The very first one was don't lie, be a person of integrity. And now he says, just watch your talk in general. Unwholesome talk, it, it's, a, it's the concept in Greek like that smell when you put a fish or a rotten uh, fruit in the trash can and it sits there all day long and you walk in the house and you go, ooh, what is that? That's unwholesome talk. That's what he's referring to. I put down it's blithering chatter or blathering conversation. And I, and I said to myself, well, I don't do much of that. And then I started thinking about what are some other elements of, of unwholesome talk? What about name calling? You have a pet name for somebody in your neighborhood? Well, there's... Because he always leaves the whatever out. Now, I call people names when I'm driving on the freeway. Now, not obscene and horrible names. Turkey Jerk is one of my favorite ones. I have no idea where I got that. But name calling. You, 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 got, you got pet names, you know, for, for people. What, what about um, sarcasm? Is anyone in the sarcasm club? Oh, I am good. The, the television programs I like the best are the ones that have the quick sarcastic repartee. I really enjoy it. What does that say about me? <laughs> Sarcasm. What about ridicule? Oh, did you see her in the gym yesterday trying to do... Oh, my goodness. I couldn't even be back behind her. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it happens. Mockery. Gossip. Back to poor Judy. Hey, did you hear? We're famous for that in the church. Oh, my goodness. We're good about that. Um, you know how in the pools they put the chemicals so when somebody potties in the pool they can spot it? I think we should have a sprayer at church. <laughs> right after church is out and you're all outside, yes, everybody's got the coffee area or whatever at their church, and everybody's walking out, I think we should have a mister that changes, that changes color when somebody's gossiping about somebody else in the church or taking the pastor around and they service in. Well, that's all. Oh, my goodness. Where did they get that singer? You know, and it would just light up a different color. And we could all go, oh, 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 oh. I mean, we're all laughing, but come on. Or words of revenge. That guy's never stepping foot in my house again because of griping or complaining lying or profanity what paul's saying is watch your mouth we're horrible at it as women we're scorekeepers that's the 17th time he's done that you know that's the 13th time this week you haven't put your shoes away 
Now, whether the number's accurate or not, we're indicating that we're keeping score. And we're not watching our talk. Proverbs 12, verse 18. The words of the reckless, they pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What do you want to be in your home? A guy stabbing everybody? Or the guy, you know, patching people up? Your kids want to come home because they know mom is going to be the one person who will listen. Yeah, you're going to give advice, and yes, you're going to point out faults. But at the same time, it is safe to sit with mom and, and, and talk because what's going to come out of her mouth is stuff of, of healing. James, in chapter 1, verse 26, says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet have not kept a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. What this does tips off everybody as to whether we're in the old man or the new man. We gotta rein it in. It it requires self-discipline. Now, some of you it comes easier than others. But for those of us that it doesn't come easy, it's it's a chore worth worth attacking. Now, I I I didn't think of this. I love it. I have used it in my own life, probably not as often as I should, but it's called Think Before You Speak. And I put it in your notes. It's a little an acronym. An acronym. An acronym. Acronym. Um, The T, the H, the I, the N, and the K stand for something. And the idea is before you open your mouth, you ask yourself these five questions. And if the answer is not an unequivocated yes to all five, you shut up. So the first one is that which you are about to say, is it truthful? So when I say, well, have you heard about Judy? I'm implying that I know some little piece of something. Well, do I know it? Did I see it? Did I personally, you know, verify it? Well, you do know that in our country, 70-70% of the time, that happens. Really? You've done the research? You've read the source documents, not listened to somebody on TV? You know, is what's coming out of your mouth for a fact truth? If not, it don't come out. Well, I've heard that that teacher, really? Do you verify that? You see it? Were you there? Were you a participant? If not, if you can't say it is truthful, you stop. The H is what you're about to say helpful. Now the question is helpful for you or helpful for them? It may very well be helpful for you. I feel a lot better after I got this off my chest. But is it helpful for them? Are they going to walk away and go, okay, she really cared about me. She took you know, time. That was important. I was ready to receive it. Mm, I don't know. Is it helpful? Third one, is it inspiring? Does it help that person do better, be better, want more, go, go better, serve better, love the Lord more? If it's not inspiring, button up. We live in a, in a cold, sarcastic, biting world. And how refreshing it is to have a group of friends around us that, that build us up, do not put us down. Yeah, they know our faults, they know what we're not so good at, but they just kind of chuckle at it. But they're there to inspire, to encourage, to build up. Is it inspiring? The end. 
This is a key one. Is it necessary? Again, necessary for them, not you. You may feel it's very necessary to get this off your chest. But does the other party think it's necessary? Are they going to walk away with, oh, that was helpful. Ooh, that was important. Ooh, that was timely. Oh, she really cares for me and shared. Or isn't it not necessary? And the last one is the kicker. Is it kind? You may know it for an absolute fact. You, you may know that this person really needs this. You may think that it is going to inspire them to do other good things. You may see it as a necessary growth. But if at the end of the day it is not kind, then button up. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Think before you speak. He's not done yet. He's got a fifth one. And in verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That term grieve, it means to to irritate or to offend or to insult or to make sad. The best quote I found on it was out of John Calvin, one of the Middle Ages theologians. And listen to what he said. He said, no language can adequately express this solemn truth that the Holy Spirit rejoices and is glad on our account when we are obedient to him in all things and neither think nor speak anything but what is pure and holy. And on the other hand, is grieved when we admit anything into our minds that is unworthy of our calling. Remember last week we talked about the equation uh, the, the, the idea that we live a life that's worthy of our calling. Well, what he's saying is when we choose to have behavior that saddens or grieves or insults or offends God, it was a very poor choice. Now you say, well, how do I do that? I, I don't understand that. Do you remember in uh, Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is one of two Psalms that David wrote after his big sin with Bathsheba, right? He lays with her... Uh, commits adultery, then makes sure that her husband is murdered off so it doesn't doesn't appear to, to everyone that that's what happened. So when he's writing in Psalm 51, he gets down into verse number four and he says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Now, wait a minute. He knows he's offended and sinned against Bathsheba. He's definitely sinned against Uriah, who he had murdered. He sinned against the whole country in relationship to his role as king. So why would he say, God, against you and you alone have I sinned? Because he understood that it mattered to God what his behavior was. I've shared with you before in my own childhood when my mom was trying to parent me, she could scream and holler and swing and swat and send me in my room and do all kinds of things. And it was like water off a duck's back. It didn't matter to me what my mother thought. And that's a whole different story, but it didn't. But when my father walked in the door... And he looked at me and said, Jerry, I am very disappointed in you. (laughs) All over for the home team. Because it mattered to me what my dad thought. It ought to matter to us what our dad thinks. We ought not to grieve the Holy Spirit. When we make choices to stop that and start doing that, it's not just because "Ah, that's a good thing to do. It's because God is honored with that. Our Heavenly Father goes, good, nice job, Jude. Good choice. 
And on the other hand, when we make the poor choice, he goes, oh, honey, that one's going to bite you. Haven't you done that with your children? You try to tell them, no, 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 don't, not a good choice, not a good choice, not a good choice, and they choose it anyway. And then while their little world is falling apart, you sit there going, why didn't you listen to me? Honey, I tried to save you from that. Okay, God's doing the same thing with his kids. So the, the, the instruction from Paul is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Make good choices. Verse 31, here's the sixth one. He says, get rid of, and then he just kind of does a basket full of things. Get all these stuff out of your life. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. I think those are all the negative words he could think of. <laughs> he says, let's just do a little spring cleaning here. Let's get rid of bitterness. Bitterness is that long-standing resentment. You didn't invite Uncle Frank to Thanksgiving dinner again this year. And when asked why, you went, well, we've been having this thing in our family for many years. I can't remember. what. Would I... Sometimes bitterness, we don't even know why it's there anymore. It's so long-standing. He says, get rid of it. Rage. Rage is the flare-up of anger. It's not the simmering one. It's the flare-up. It's the quick. Get rid of it. Brawling. That's the screaming kind of arguments. Some people are better at that than others. Slander, trying to damage somebody's reputation. And malice is going that one step further of actually having it in for somebody. And, and maybe, maybe doing some things. I've told you a great illustration in my own life. A bad one, but nonetheless, most of my illustrations are bad about me anyway. But I had a next door neighbor in our, the house that we used to live in. And he was horrible. He was a horrible man. And, and he was mean and awful and said nasty things to me and Barb and Brianna. And it was just horrible. He was not a very nice guy. And one day I came home with a, a, a migraine and, I, and I, I was in a lot of pain. And I was upstairs trying to you know, get it settled. And he had taken his uh, table saw out of his garage and taken it into his backyard and put it right below my window and was doing some project with, with stone. And you can imagine the sound. And I am dying up there with this noise on. So I come downstairs and I come and I go to his back gate and I'm hollering for him. He can't hear me. So I open the back gate and I take about 10 steps in. He gets screaming mad at me. What are you doing on my property? Blah, 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 blah. Get off, get off. I'm going to call the police. It was an awful moment. So rather than go upstairs and sweetly pray for the man, this is what I did. I went upstairs and laid there thinking about ways I could get back at him without getting caught. <laughs> Now, my best idea, which I never pulled off, but it was a really good idea, was I was going to fill balloons full of black paint. We lived up against... It was a good idea. Come on. We lived, we lived up against a, a, a park. And I could be in the park and nobody would know who I was. And I was going to let the balloons go when they were you know, floating over this direction. Then I was going to run and get in my backyard and with a, with a BB gun, pop it at the right moment as it was floating over his back patio. Now, come on. That is a good way to get back at somebody and they can't catch you. That's malice. That's, that's having it out for somebody. I never did it, but it doesn't matter in my heart. So what's Proverbs 11 say? It says, those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel, they bring ruin on themselves. He says in, in, in chapter 15 of Proverbs, a gentle answer turns away wrath, 
Harsh words stirs up anger. And again, in 15.4, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Get rid of all that stuff. Make a conscious effort. Do a little spring cleaning. Go into the closet of your heart and say, there's too much of that. There's too much of that. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to work on that. Choose one. Choose two. Get rid of stuff. He goes on. Number seven in his book shows up in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. And he finishes it off by saying, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Be ye kind to one another. Compassionate. Kindness. What's kindness? Well, I found a definite South County definition. Here it is. It's like mellow wine that is not harsh and it doesn't bite. Now, I don't drink wine, but I I, I figured that that would resonate with some. It's the idea that it's useful. When we look at the the, uh, list of, of, of definitions of what love is in 1 Corinthians 13... The first one is love is patient. What's the second one? Kind. Love is kind. It's kind. It, it looks at the other person and says, hey, is, is what I'm about to say or do going to be useful and helpful and build you up? Or is it just a release for me? If it's just a release for you, no. Nah. i, I got to think about kindness. i got to put the other person first. That's the whole thing about love in the Bible. It's never about an emotion. It's about putting the other party's needs before your own. When we say we love someone, we want to be kind to them, whether they're a next-door neighbor or one of your children or your husband or an extended relative. Kindness is what's being required. And and a, a companion to that is the word compassionate. Compassion. Paul tells us in Colossians, a parallel passage to the one we're reading in Ephesians, to clothe ourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. These are the things we wear. So next time you're getting dressed, maybe that's a great verse for the mirror in, 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 your, in your bedroom or in your closet. Clothe yourself with compassion. Clothe yourself with kindness, with humility. Think more about that than the shoes you're choosing or the outfit you're about to put on because that's compassion. Now remember, compassion and kindness are actions, not emotions. Our world talks a lot about emotions. This is not an emotion. This is an action. When I show kindness, it's something I do. I don't say nice platitudes and walk away. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan that we used as a, as a pattern for the kids in the missions conference, Who is Your Neighbor?, the, the two guys that went by and did nothing, the, 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 the stomping, uh, very powerful part of that story, and the kids got it, was that the Bible says they walked on the other side. Now, m- while they're walking, I can imagine one of them saying, hey, I hope things work out, bud. Hey, hang in there. Hope you have a good day. You know what? I, sorry, I'll pray for you. Hang in. There's no kindness or compassion in that. Kindness and compassion is the guy who stopped, did his thing, spent some money, did some effort, did whatever to, to meet that guy's needs. When you and I are kind, it is not an emotion. It is an action. We hear about someone in church, a young gal, she just came home with her baby and she's having a tough time. We don't send her a note and pray for her. Yes, you should pray for her, but you should go to the house. Go get her groceries for her. Put them away for her. Grab the other kids for a few hours and let her get a nap. 
Vacuum or floor. Do something. It's not enough to just go, oh, hope things work out, Holly. Be praying for you, babe. I, no, maybe, maybe she needs 100 bucks. Maybe she needs a ride. Maybe she needs to borrow my car. That's the, the sign. Uh, let me prove my point by having you look at an Old Testament passage in Zechariah. So if you get to Matthew, just go left one more, two more books, really. Matthew, find Zechariah. And look at chapter 7. There's Malachi and then there's Zechariah. Chapter 7. He's going he's gonna to outline this for us. Chapter 7 and verse number 9. He says, This is what the Lord Almighty said. This is the definition of kindness and compassion. Administer true justice. Show mercy. Show mercy. Show. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil, plot evil against each other. These are actions. I'm all up in arms about our political situation. Great. What are you doing about it? I think what we're doing to the da-da-da is not, is not good. Great. What are you doing about it? I don't want to hear this. I want to know. When, when the refugees were down in San Diego and all the big hula a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago or so, I made a comment to someone, really, instead of the Christians getting all upset about one side or the other of the political position, how about we fill our cars full of a bunch of waters from Costco and drive down there? Stand on this side of the border and hand out the waters. See, that's what Zachariah is saying. Kindness and compassion, they're things that we do. We don't say to our husband, oh, I love you, honey. I, I'm really sorry that you know, life is going so tough for you right now. We do some things. We write some silly notes and st- hide them in his briefcase or in his car. We stick them in our kid's lunchbox. We find ways to express what is a good emotion, but is done in a thing, an activity, a, a gesture. And the latter part of verse 32, he takes it one last step and he says, forgive each other. Forgive each other as or in the way or in the pattern as Christ forgave you or God in Christ forgave you. The word forgiveness in the Bible comes from the same biblical root word as grace. When we forgive someone, we're giving them grace. When God saw us and we asked for his mercy and grace, we put our faith and trust in him and chose him as our savior. He gave us grace. He forgave me of my sins, not because I deserved it or I earned it. We just sang it this morning, but because of grace, he just gave it in that same way. We're to give grace, but you don't understand how this person has hurt me. No, I probably don't, nor do you know mine, but forgiveness is not an act based on the other person's behavior. It it isn't two-sided. It's one-sided. Now, restitution or, or reconciliation. Now, that's two-sided. You can't reconcile with someone unless two parties want to reconcile. But I can forgive. And I should. Forgiveness is not hinged on whether or not that other person deserves it. None of us deserve it. Start with you and work outward. Did you deserve the grace of God? Not me. Not before and not after. It is by grace that I've been saved through faith, not, that not of myself. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody could boast. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So when we have people in our lives, we need to know how to forgive them so we don't look like everyone else who's unsaved. We don't join into the conversation about, oh yeah, my mother-in-law. No, 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 no. Forgiveness is a principle. It's found in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, it says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Whoa, I don't want that happening. <laughs> I mean, like, no thank you. You know, and, and then Peter, in, in, in Matthew 18, he comes to Jesus and, he, and, he, and he's trying to, you know, bolster his own spiritual walk. And he says, Lord, just how many times do you think we should be forgiving people? And according to the Old Testament law, there were some rules about how often you should forgive. And, and I don't remember what the number was. I think it was three or four. And so Peter, in his mind, processes what that, you know, that good number was, according to a good old, the rabbis. And it, and it kind of doubles it. And he says, oh, well, Lord, should I forgive him seven times? Trying to come off, you know, like spiritual Joe. And what does Jesus tell him? No, not seven times. Seventy times seven. 490 times. A little more than Peter had in his mind. You and I are called to forgive. That's a touchstone of a believer. They don't hold grudges. They don't run around with it in their backpack for their entire lives. They don't hold something against somebody. That doesn't mean that you have let them off the hook. That just means they're on God's hook. It doesn't mean that there's reconciliation. It doesn't mean that a relationship has been restored. That may not be at your disposal. What is at your disposal is your own attitude. So, so I, I, I end the lesson where I started it. We are our values. And Paul's made a, a list of eight things here. He's reiterating something that he said in Romans 13. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. That's a high and holy standard. But that's how we look different than everyone else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the very practical walking out of truth that Paul gives us in the latter part of chapter 4. There's a little punch list that we can take this week and sit it down on our kitchen table every single morning, take out our cup of coffee and take a look at those eight things and ask you to work on it with us, to lay them before you. Hey, my mouth hasn't been what it should be. My integrity has, has been questionable. My language or, or the way I'm, I'm using my mouth has not been for others. It's not been kind. Lord, I, I need to work on that. Or, or, or any of the other things. Father, help us to want to be more like your kids and less like the kids of the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.